0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast with your host, Eric P.
1: Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Singcast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, aka Duke Scath in the world of video games, aka Skartol in the world of Wikipedia. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. Buckle up and let's get started. I'd like to start this week, uh, you know, it's eight weeks until the beginning of the the end of the school year, and as you can hear, my brain is in this weird addled state, I'm trying to just hang on until summer break, uh, but it feels like it gets further and further away all the time, Uh, I got lots of papers to grade and stuff, but you know what, I'm not doing that right now, because this is more important, the world needs to know about the Can Eat More. Let's talk about current events. As most of you know, we are entering the campaign for the presidency here in the United States. It's going to happen in November. And to be honest, I really don't care very much about the whole U.S. presidential election. I'm probably not going to be talking about it much on this show unless someone says something worth commenting on. Uh, Obama will probably beat Romney, but I'm really not too excited about Obama. He has shown himself to be mostly like President Clinton was—good on some things, better than the Republican option, but unwilling to really strive for greatness. I was very excited when Obama, or when Clinton won. I was excited when Obama won, won too. But when when Clinton won, I had known nothing other than Reagan and Bush Senior. Like that was all I had ever known as presidents. So I thought, well, anything's got to be better than them, and you know. Bush senior was trying to get elected again. And I was like, no, I'm sick of this guy. Like we should have someone different. So Clinton came in and I was like, yeah, he's the man from hope. This is going to be different. (laughs) No, it wasn't. So, you know, Clinton did a lot of stupid things. He bombed Baghdad on a regular basis. He oversaw the sanctions, which killed half a million Iraqi children. And then somebody asked Madeleine Albright, his secretary of state, what about the 500,000 Iraqi children that died because of the sanctions? And the, the purpose of the sanctions was to try to get rid of Saddam Hussein from power. And she said, oh, it's a high price, but we think it's worth it. So that let us know just how much how important human rights were to the Clinton presidency. Also, Clinton had the opportunity to really do something about East Timor, but he never did. In fact, at one point, there were some uh, Timorese students studying in Indonesia, and they staged a hunger strike, even though... Uh, public protests about East Timor were really dangerous, and they probably got arrested and sent to some Indonesian prison somewhere where they got tortured. Anyway, Clinton walked right past them. He didn't even say a word to them. Uh, They were protesting outside some meeting he was going to, so that was messed up, and he did the whole welfare reform. There's so many things Clinton did wrong, and he did some things that were good. He was probably better than Bush Sr. in some ways, but uh, in the sum total of things, it's really uninspiring. And that's why I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000. And I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000 in Florida. So uh, if anybody's to blame for the fact that George W. Bush won, having to do with spoiler votes going to Nader, it's me. But, you know what? I don't feel bad about it. And Michael Moore went back and said, Oh, I'm sorry I voted for Nader. I'm sorry I supported Nader. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm don't. I'm not. i not sorry I voted for Nader, because Gore had not really done anything to earn our respect as a world leader. And, you know, okay, yeah, he's devoted himself to fighting environmental pollution, and that's good, but, I don't know, it's more of the same, and, and, and Obama's a lot like that. Obama deported one million illegal immigrants because he assumed that the Republicans would take that as a sign of good faith. Gee, I wonder if that happened. <laughs> nope, sure didn't. So, you know, isn't Obama the sucker because he assumed the Republicans would meet him halfway? That's his whole thing. So they're gonna meet us, they're, tell- they're gonna meet us with discourse and we're gonna have a, a rational uh, negotiation. No, you're not. Most of the Republican leadership is like rabid conservative ideologues and they have no interest in what's actually best and and coming to some sort of agreement they are uh, the leadership of the republican party at this point in time is filled with these uh hysterical fanatical zealots who refuse to even negotiate and we've talked about Grover Norquist on here i'm using the royal we there of course Uh, so I just think Obama becomes the sucker for assuming that you can have a a sort of back and forth with these people. They are not willing to negotiate. They are not willing to meet you halfway, and it's, if they see it as a blood sport. So if, you know, it's like if you're playing basketball with somebody and they have knives out on the court and they've paid off the ref. Okay, so the, what do you, if you play honestly, you're going to get stabbed and you're going to lose, Right. And I'm not saying it's okay to then pull out a knife, but I'm saying like you have to call it like it is and you have to change the way you play the game in order to deal with it. Maybe you could put on some armor, okay? that would be a way to counteract the knife thing without sinking to their level. And I'm not saying Obama should sink to their level. And there's this whole thing about super PACs. Obama came out against Citizens United and he chastised the Supreme Court justices in his State of the Union speech while they were sitting there, and and that's good on him, Like that's awesome. I'm glad he did that. However, he then turned around and said, oh, uh, I'm going to use super PAC money and that's messed up. So whatever. Um, Obama also began his healthcare push by refusing to even discuss a single payer option, which was messed up. And then he said he folded on the public option thing as well. And Obama has overseen more attacks on Pakistan with flying robots than Bush uh, Bush Jr. did. So, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not impressed by Obama's presidency. And again, he's better than Romney and he'll probably win, which is why I don't feel bad not voting for Obama. But I'm, you know, I'm seriously thinking about voting for a third-party candidate. Whatever. I don't really want to give it too much time. The big news this week is that George Zimmerman got arrested. Yay! Uh yeah, this is from the Christian Science Monitor. The headline is Traven Martin case relief and hope in Sanford, Florida after Zimmerman charged with second-degree murder charges filed Wednesday against George Zimmerman in the Traven Martin case. Residents in Sanford, Florida, scene of the alleged crime, uh perceive that this a crisis has passed and I'm hoping that the freaking neo-Nazis went home and the Black Panthers can tone everything down. I mean, I, I, as I've said, like I, I I don't blame the Black Panther the New Black Panther Party for being Angry and wanting to have a presence, but the bounty was stupid and whatever. Anyway, here's the article. Selections from it, anyway, emotions of grim satisfaction mixed with doses of celebratory approval circulated throughout pockets of Sanford Wednesday evening as news traveled through town that neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman was in custody and staring down charges of second-degree murder. Later in the article, the charges and they have quotes from people who are like, "I'm so glad, hallelujah," you know, whatever. Uh, the charges didn't make all residents, officials, and business owners as openly happy as this person named Rollins. They had been quoting, but a feeling that Sanford had emerged from a period of crisis and back to one of normal was a common reaction. Uh, City Manager Norton Bonaparte said that the charges prove that the justice system quote, takes time, end quote, but it works. I don't know that I agree with that. I think this is an example of how the justice system broke down and it was only when the Martin family refused to accept the incompetence of the police department and refused to accept that, you know what, this is just one of those things that happens And, and a bunch of people stood up with them and said... We demand some kind of justice here. That's what we saw. That system works, but it shouldn't have to come to that. And unfortunately, too often it does. Speaking of which, Amy Goodman's been pursuing a case this week uh, that she wrote about in The Guardian, and she, of course, covered it on Democracy Now!, and it's a very interesting story. Uh, The headline of The Guardian piece she wrote is Echoes of Traven Martin in the Police Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. Another African-American was gunned down by police and no one was charged. This time, the whole event was recorded. Now, I don't think that the audio recording or the video recording of this is available publicly or else I would have found it. Um, Anyway, here's the the summary of what she wrote. In the early hours of Saturday, 19th of November 2011, U.S. Marine veteran Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. accidentally hit his life aid medical alert pendant, presumably while sleeping. The 68-year-old retired corrections officer had a heart condition, but he wasn't in need of help that dawn. Within two hours, the White Plains, New York Police Department had broken down his apartment door and shot him dead. Uh, his son went on Democracy Now! and talked about this case. He said, uh, Chamberlain Jr. repeated what he heard his father say on the tape. He says, I'm a 68-year-old man with a heart condition. Why are you doing this to me? And they'd broken his door down, and, and they were pointing guns at him and stuff. Uh, you can also hear him pleading with the officers again over and over. And one of the police officers called him the N-word, and he's like, I'm a sick old man, like, we don't give a F, and all this stuff. It's just a crazy story. The life aid operator that November morning, hearing the exchange live, called the White Plains police in a desperate attempt to cancel the call for medical emergency aid, emergency medical aid. Chamberlain senior's niece who lives in the building ran down trying to intervene. Chamberlain senior's sister was on her mobile phone offering to talk to her brother. The police denied any attempt at help. One was heard on the recording saying, "Quote, we don't need any mediator." So, I'm curious to know why the police went bashing into his house cuz I mean, I suppose That's standard procedure if you have this sort of life aid stuff, but the fact that they went from trying supposedly responding to a complaint about somebody in medical distress to shooting this man to death. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, it's possible they're just psychopaths, but... I have to f- suspect that there was something else in, in the middle of it. I- I'm not trying to exonerate the police. They probably you know, are guilty of murder and somebody should be arrested, uh, but it just seems crazy that it went so quickly from they were ostensibly going to report on some sort of medical issue and uh, instead he died. So I don't know. This is a very suspicious case, and I will be watching this very carefully. Meanwhile... Um, Invisible Children, real quick, I want to talk about this group that did the Kony 2012 video. They have their second part that came out recently. It's, it's good. I encourage people to watch it. Uh, I'm still nervous about sending U.S. advisors to Central Africa, uh, but I also believe that Invisible Children is doing good work, whatever. Um, the news this week is that a... WikiLeaks cable, a cable that was leaked by WikiLeaks, a U.S. Uh, diplomatic cable that was released last year by WikiLeaks, has to do with invisible children helping Ugandan security forces to arrest a government opponent. And uh, the cable was part of WikiLeaks's massive Cablegate series. It was sent on June the 11th, 2009, and it was signed by then-ambassador Stephen Browning um, it concerns reports of a new rebellion in northern Uganda organized by members of the Akoli ethnic group, of which Joseph Kony is also a member. The LRA grew out of that Akoli uh, community, and the, part of the tension between the Ugandan military and the Lord's Resistance Army I mean, the LRA is not fighting on behalf of the Akoli people, but the fact that most of the Ugandan military is not Akoli and the fact that there has been that tension between the majority of people in Uganda and the Akoli community uh, has to, you know, it plays into it at least. Anyway. Uh, This is from the article uh, from the foreignpolicy.com. In early 2009, the Ugandan army arrested a number of people alleged to be involved in plots in the PPF, originally known as the Uganda Patriotic Front, or UPF, to attack military targets, including uh, a person named Patrick Komakech, who had reportedly been impersonating senior LRA commanders on behalf of the new rebel group. Komakech, uh, reportedly a former LRA child soldier, had been involved with Invisible Children for some time and had appeared in several of its videos. Uh later on in the article it says, While the cable had been online for months, its content seemed to have been first reported uh, this Sunday by the obscure New York based website Black Star News under the inflammatory headline Invisible Children, makers of Kony twenty twelve, spied for the Ugandan regime And this article the foreign policy article does a much better job of saying here's what it actually says calm down black star news this is more of that hysterical sort of uh, oversimplification we saw with a lot of the Coney 2012 reactions and as I've said a lot of the Coney 2012 stuff in the video itself is oversimplified but that's one of the things I think they actually did well in their second video Invisible Children's follow-up Coney 2012 part 2 tries to make it clear that this is not a new a simple case and I think they're probably backtracking a little bit from what what they did in the first video, but needless to say, um, I think the second video is much better than the first. Um, anyway, some Uganda watchers have suggested that the government, the current government in Uganda, Museveni, uh, may be playing up the threat from the PPF to distract more from more pedestrian problems of governance. Now that the LRA threat has largely been neutralized in Uganda, further on in the article, Invisible Children Uganda spokesperson Florence Ogala was quoted in Uganda's Daily Monitor newspaper yesterday denying the truth of the cable. That is not true. We are not involved in anything to do with security. We only deal with development. She described the allegations as part of the propaganda campaign against the group. Now, to sneak a diplomatic cable from a U.S. person uh, into the WikiLeaks batch of documents that WikiLeaks obtained and then disseminated, I, I don't know how that would be propaganda against Invisible Children, but so that seems fishy. But it also seems like you know whatever. The article says, in an emailed statement of foreign policy, a spokesperson for Invisible Children did not elaborate on whether it had played a role in Komakech's arrest, but it it did say that it had. Uh, he did say that it had discussed his case with the U.S. Embassy. Quote, at the time, uh, some background is given in 2009, at the time, it was brought to our attention that Mr. Komakech and a group of others were allegedly involved in activities that could be jeopardizing the lives of civilians and putting the organization and its staff at risk. So... We don't in- conduct intelligence efforts of any kind for a foreign government," the p- spokesperson said. Needless to say, I'm interested to know more about this event. It's not the ca- I don't believe what Black Star News says about these people spying for the Ugandan government, but I-, I would like to know more about it. And if Invisible Children was involved, that seems a little messed up because this has nothing to do with, you know, fighting the LRA or or whatever it is. So I don't know. I thought that's kind of interesting. Meanwhile, in the Atlantic, uh, there's a very interesting article. Uh, The headline is, the richest, fattest nation on earth. It's not the United States. Uh, Instead, it's about Qatar. The article starts like this. Qatar is a tiny country with a big problem. This Connecticut-sized nation sticking out like a loose tooth in the Persian Gulf is one of the most obese nations in the world with residents fatter on average than even those of the United States, which often takes the cake in such competitions. See what they did there? takes the cake that's pretty funny that's funny isn't it isn't it Stu? that's funny isn't that funny according to recent studies roughly half of adults and a third of children in qatar are obese and almost seventeen percent of the native population suffers from diabetes by comparison about a third of americans are obese and eight percent are diabetic Come on, people in the U.S., we need to step this up. We're losing our edge. If we can't claim to be number one in terms of obesity and health problems related to eating too much, what are we number one in? Dropping robot drones on Pakistan. Yeah, we are number one in that. Thank you, high-pitched person sitting here next to me. You're welcome. You should stick around for the rest of the show. Okay. Don't you have anything to do? I should be grading papers, but I don't feel like it. Yeah, me neither. Let's just hang out and do the podcast. Okay. What's your name? Robert. Hi, Robert. Nice to meet you. What's up with your incredibly high-pitched voice? I don't know. It's how I've always talked. All right, well, whatever, I'm not trying to judge you. Anything else about Qatar? Yeah, there's another article, uh, paragraph later on. Uh, it says, they're concentrating the gene pool, and at the same time, they're facing rapid affluence, said Sharoud Aljundi Mathis, program, direct- program manager. Sorry, I almost called him the program director. Calm down. <sighs> Deep breath, Piotrowski.
0: Yeah, you really messed that up. Shut up, Robert, I don't
1: need you criticizing me in HD. I've shut you in the face now, date's over. Uh, yeah, sorry. Sharood Aljundi Mathis, the program manager at the Qatar Diabetes Association, a government-funded health center in Doha, the capital. Everyone knows Doha is the capital of Qatar. Yeah, some people call it Qatar, but I, I don't know. It sounds weird. Maybe it should be pronounced Qatar. I should look it up, but I'm not going to. You're a lazy bum. Shh, get off my back, Robert. As a result of these factors, Qataris are becoming obese, passing on genetic disorders at an alarming rate, and getting diabetes much more often than others around the world. They're also getting diabetes a decade younger than the average age of onset, which is pushing up rates of related illnesses and complications like hypertension, blindness, partial paralysis, heart disease, and loss of productivity. Quote, it's a very, very serious problem facing the future of Qatar, Mathis said. So, I don't know, I just found that fascinating. I mean, hey, anything that allows me to not feel bad about being overweight, <laughs> I'm all for that. Meanwhile, uh, in news from the U.S. military, CNN had a very interesting article recently. Uh, the headline was, Rape Victims Say Military Labels Them, Quote, Crazy. And this was posted yesterday, Saturday, the 14th of April, and... uh Yeah, the article has all these stories from women who have reported rape and sexual assault in the military, and uh, it's not a pleasant pattern that emerges. CNN has interviewed women in all branches of the armed forces, including the Coast Guard, who tell stories that follow a similar pattern. A sexual assault, a command dismissive of the allegations, and a psychiatric discharge. Uh, Someone they interviewed named Schroeder says a fellow Marine followed her to the bathroom in April 2002. She says he then punched her, ripped off her pants, and raped her. When she reported what happened, a non-commissioned officer dismissed the allegation, saying, quote, don't come bitching to me because you had sex and changed your mind, Schroeder recalls. And uh, again, you should read the article because it's just horrifying. Uh, They had an interview with uh, a person named Bhagwati, uh, who works with the Service Women's Action Network. And she said, quote, I believe it's a she. You should look
0: it up before you start talking about it.
1: Yeah, I know, Robert. Anu Bhagwati, a former company commander in the Marines and executive director of the Service Women's Action Network. Uh, So, yeah, she said, quote, it makes absolutely no sense for medically for people to be diagnosed all of a sudden after being sexually assaulted as an adult in the military to say, quote, no, you've had this all along, says Bhagwati. Uh, so you know, it's not bad. It's not. It's bad enough that these women suffered rape or sexual assault at the hands of their fellow service members who are supposed to be, you know, supporting them and and forming group cohesion with them. Instead, they're they're victims of these violent sexual assaults. And then when they report them, as obviously they should, they get dismissed as being crazy and then drummed out of the service. Well, gee, I wonder why more women don't report rapes to the police. Uh. Because, you know what, and this is an obviously hideous example of something that unfortunately happens in civilian life too, because there's an assumption on a lot of guys that when a woman says she was raped, that, oh, she must have had sex and then decided she didn't really want to have sex. She felt bad about it or whatever it is. And I'm not prepared to say that never happens, but for that to be the default assumption is just insane to me. It's like if a friend comes to me, he's like, man, someone stole my car, and I start going... You know, I I think you probably drove it off a cliff and you want to collect the insurance money and you're really just saying somebody stole your car. Isn't that really what happened? Come on, tell the truth. That's it, isn't it? Come on, admit it. Quote, uh, this is from the article, Dr. Liza H. Gold, a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University School of Medicine, says it's a rule of thumb among psychiatrists not to diagnose someone with a personality disorder in the middle of a traumatic experience like a divorce, litigation, or the aftermath of a sexual assault. And then it quotes from the DSM-IV, which is the standard text about how to classify psychiatric problems. Quote, when personality changes emerge and persist after an individual has been exposed to extreme stress, a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder should be considered. Of course, I'm not surprised the military doesn't want to offer diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder because that might mean they'd have to provide psychiatric care for that person. Oh, my God. What a horrible concept. Speaking of which, I had a conversation with a person on Reddit recently who he was a veteran and he, he was talking about just, you know, they do this thing on Reddit called Ask Me Anything. And you can, you know, just put questions up. The person will answer them. Uh, Morgan Spurlock, by the way, did one of those. It was awesome. It was really interesting. People asked good questions, and uh, he gave interesting responses. Uh, they asked, how many times did you actually throw up during the making of uh, Supersize Me? And he said, just the once, uh, my body was you know, getting used to the influx of horrible food. Anyway, uh so I had this I sort of wrote some questions to this person who had, you know, been in the military and he was talking about he said I feel like veterans are poorly understood on Reddit and so I said, you know, people had asked what do you think is misunderstood and this and that and I said to him like, you know, he had mentioned he had suffered from post traumatic stress disorder and I was asking more about it and it emerges that, you know, he's having these nightmares and and he's he's com- contemplated suicide, he's come very close a couple times. He said my dog was the only thing that kept me from killing myself. And I just, my heart broke when I read that because, you know, obviously it happens with a number of vets. And as I've said before, man, if there's any vets listening to this and you're worried or you're filled with anxiety or, you know, post-traumatic stress or whatever, freaking get help, man. That's messed up. You serve your country. You deserve to get better. And that's not okay that our military says, oh, these people are probably fine. Just get over it. You need to step up and man up as the saying goes and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, um... crazy stuff. All right, let's move on to something more amusing. Newt Gingrich. He's always amusing. Oh my goodness. The Daily Show did a great thing about Newt Gingrich being, living in his car and stuff. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Newt Gingrich this week said, quote, Fox News. Well, I don't, this isn't the quote, but he said basically that Fox News is being biased against him. Uh, In what some might consider an act of GOP political suicide, Newt Gingrich slammed Fox News earlier this week saying that the cable news channel had favored Mitt Romney throughout the 2012 campaign and that CNN has been the more fair and balanced network this cycle. Quote, I think Fox has been for Romney all the way through, Gingrich said during a meeting with Tea Party leaders in Delaware on Wednesday, which said it would granted access to the private event. Da, da, da. Uh, in our experience, Callista and I both believe, he always talks about his wife, Callista and I, who cares? She's not running for office. Anyway, uh, we both believe CNN is less biased than Fox this year. We are more likely to get neutral coverage out of CNN than we are of Fox, and we're more likely to get distortion out of Fox. That's just a fact. Hey, Gingrich, welcome to real life, as uh, the dude said in Spaceballs. You know what? This is what people have been saying for 10 years about Fox News. And people over in the U.K. and Ireland, you guys know all about Nice Corp. And uh, that's what uh, Harry Shearer calls it on the show. And Rupert Murdoch's you know news organizations, this is the standard thing everywhere they go. And the fact that it... See, here's that thing. I don't have a name for this yet. I'll come up with a cute name for it sooner or later.
0: I can think of some
1: possibilities. Shut up, Robert. You don't even know how to talk. Anyway, you can't type.
0: No, you can't type.
1: Sorry, I got these metal arms. Here's the thing. People like Newt Gingrich and Sarah Palin, I also have an example of this for her, they they have these theories about, oh, here's the way the world works. And somebody will say, no, here's the way the world works for me. Here's my experience. And that challenges your view of how the world works. And, And they dismiss that point of view, the response from the other person, until it happens to them. So, newt Gingrich presume I mean, he went on Fox News all the time in the past and he was always about, oh, fair and balanced and you know, conservative Americans don't get their voices heard and blah 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 blah. But finally, when you're the victim of Fox's uh prejudice and bias, suddenly, oh, Fox is not fair and balanced. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. We need to have one standard. And I'm not going to say that Fox is uh, unfair and unbalanced just because they pick on Democrats you know, in some ways, MSNBC picks on and bashes Republicans, and I don't think that's okay either. I will say MSNBC is much less horrible about it, and there are certain shows on MSNBC, like Rachel Maddow, that I don't think you can even make that claim. I don't think there's any show on Fox News that's like, oh, this group, this show really is fair and balanced. You almost said group. I know I almost said group. Robert, I, listen, you can't be commenting on every single thing I say, all right? You're here as a guest. Don't push it. Sorry. That's all right. So anyway, I just think it's ridiculous for Newt Gingrich to be, oh, suddenly I'm, I'm personally, uh, victimized by Fox, so therefore I'm gonna call Fox out on their distortions. You know what? I don't have any sympathy for that, all right? Ice T once said, when the riots are starting and the city of Los Angeles is burning, that's not the time to come to me with a public enemy shirt on. And I feel like Gingrich here has the public enemy shirt on now. And same with Sarah Palin. She was talking about, she when she she said at one point in some interview, Oh, when we were growing up, we used to sneak across the border of Alaska into Canada for some free health care. Isn't that ironic? Yeah, it's kind of ironic. It's also kind of hypocritic, hypocritical and pathetic.
0: You almost said hypothetical.
1: Yeah, I sure did. That was pretty ridiculous. You
0: could edit it out.
1: I don't have time for editing things out. I got to grade papers. Yeah, me too. What do you teach? Speech? You're a speech teacher and that's how you talk? Yeah, what's the problem? Nothing. It's just, I don't know, you sound like some sort of weird Gumby character. Stop making fun of how I talk. Alright, if you stop making fun of me messing up occasionally... Okay, deal. All right. Let's finish the current events thing with a a good story. This is amazing. First of all, to set the background, there's this documentary film called Street Fight. You should totally watch it. It's fascinating. It's about a race for the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, between the sort of old, established uh, candidate who's got tons of money and tons of political muscle, and this guy named Cory Booker, and... It's all about how hard it is for him to sort of mount an effective campaign. And he he grew up in Newark and he sees the government failing the people, especially poor people in in the city. And he, he, he runs this campaign that's all about like, hey, people, let's get together. Let's make a change. Let's really do something different. And I really like Cory Booker based on that documentary. Now, I'm not gonna, you know, I haven't followed his mayorship. He won, by the way. So I'm not, I haven't followed his mayorship. I don't really know how well he's done now that he's in office of making those changes that the people of Newark need. I also recognize that mayors of towns like Newark and Detroit and, and, and Cleveland, uh, It's not like they can just snap their fingers and get rid of all the poverty. They are dependent on state budgets, and the state budgets are dependent on federal budgets, and there's a lot less money trickling down than there should be and all the rest of it. But this story is awesome. This comes to us from the Chicago Sun-Times, and the headline is, Newark Mayor Cory Booker helps rescue neighbors from fire. Just when you thought he couldn't be cooler... The mayor of New Jersey's largest city said Friday he thought he might die when he dashed through a burning, smoky kitchen to find and rescue a neighbor from her second-floor bedroom. Quote, I felt fear. I didn't really think we were going to get out of there, said Mayor Cory Booker, his burned right hand still bandaged. The 42-year-old mayor said it was very difficult to breathe as he looked for the woman, da-da-da. Uh I mean that's just amazing. Like it's one thing for him to be, you know, fighting for the rights of working people and standing up for the poor, but to run into a burning building to save people, that's awesome. I mean, it's awesome when anybody does that, but this is just amazing. Booker downplayed his actions saying he just did what any neighbor would do, quote, which is jump into action to help a friend. Wow, that is too cool for words. And now let's talk about economics.
0: Uh,
1: uh, Goldman Sachs has been fined $20 million over what they call trading huddles. Uh, this is from a New York Times blog, maybe? I don't know. Deal book with percentage signs for the O's and books. See what they did there? It's pretty clever. It is clever. Yeah. Um, okay, so Goldman fined $22 million over trading huddles. They agreed on Thursday to pay securities regulators $22 million to settle accusations that it did not have adequate policies in place to stop stock research tips from being passed inappropriately to its biggest clients. In its complaint, the SEC Securities and Exchange Commission said that top clients received preferential treatment through Goldman's trading huddles in which the bank's research analysts met frequently to develop trading tips that were passed to the firm's traders and then select clients. So, a few people at the top got these and the rest of the clients of Goldman Sachs did not. Some of their recommendations differed from ratings printed in Goldman's widely circulated long-term reports. The action follows an enforcement action by Massachusetts regulators which fined Goldman's $10 million in 2011. Um, Robert S. Kuzami, director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, said, Higher risk trading and business pr- strategies require higher order controls. Despite being on notice from the SEC about the importance of such controls, Goldman failed to implement policies and procedures that adequately controlled the risk that research analysts could preview upcoming ratings changes with select traders and clients. So obviously I'm glad that the SEC did this. It sounds like a messed up thing. It, it also sounds like the way that every company works in the world. Like you're biggest clients are the ones you treat extra nice right like duh but apparently that's illegal however this fine that they announced it reminded me of a, a scene from fight club the movie where uh the narrator jack whatever his name is the guy played by ed norton he says he's talking about he works for this car company and his job is to go out and figure out what happened and accidents and then they apply the formula so here's the line from Fight Club. I'll just play the audio.
0: I was a recall coordinator. My job was to apply the formula.
1: Tear's the went through the windshield. Three points.
0: A new car built by my company leaves somewhere traveling at 60 miles per hour. The rear differential locks up. The teenager's braces are wrapped around the backseat ashtray. Might make a good anti-smoking ad. The car crashes and burns with everyone trapped inside. Now, should we initiate a recall? The father must have been huge. You see where the fats burn to the seat the polyester shirt very modern
1: art
0: (laughs) take the number of vehicles in the field a multiply it by the probable rate of failure b then multiply the result by the average out of court settlement c a times b times c equals x if x is less than the cost of a recall we don't do one are there a lot of these kinds of accidents you wouldn't believe which car company do you work for a major one,
1: and that's what companies do that's the way they think about this sort of law enforcement it doesn't make sense if they can make more money by breaking the law considering the relatively small fines that they usually get hit with then the law doesn't become a deterrent to the crime it just becomes another number on the spreadsheet that Goldman says okay we had to pay 22 million dollars in fines last year but we made $50 million from the illegal activity. So it's a net profit of $30 million, even though it's illegal. This is why we have to go further than just fining these companies, because that doesn't seem to be slowing down the illegal activity. I mean, it's a good first start. Don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a good step, but, but it's not the... The, the the real action that needs to be taken in order to really put the killbosh on this sort of illegal activity. Meanwhile, there have been two, I found two pieces recently about uh, high, f- high frequency trading. Uh, one from Bloomberg and there's a thing called Bloomberg View, which I guess is like a blog. It's like guest commentary from someone named Bernard S. Donifer, uh, who is, uh, let's see, his CV is probably at the bottom of this thing. Um, duh yeah here we go uh... he is a distinguished lecturer and associate director of the Subotnik financial services center of baruch college uh... city university of new york opinions expressed are his own and his whole thing is about how High-frequency trading is progress, not piracy. And some people say that high-frequency trading is a form of piracy. And that actually shows up in the second piece I'm going to talk about in just a minute. But this guy says, uh, High-frequency technology has been wrongly blamed for sudden instability in the markets. Such criticisms of HFT are overblown, and regulating potential abuses isn't as hard as many believed. In fact, more regulation, unless wisely applied, is likely to do more harm than good. Critics are concerned that traders with low latency technology who often pay to locate their servers near an exchanges systems to decrease messaging delays, like that cable we talked about recently going from New York to London, and there's one in New Jersey, this huge building where every computer is exactly the same distance from the pipe coming in. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, they have the earliest access to market data and may front run other market participants. But, he says, information timing asymmetries have always existed. So he, his point is this is just a more advanced version of, of a problem that's always been around. You know, If you have a person on the exchange, you're going to get data more quickly than somebody who has to get that data over the wire or whatever it is. You know the stock tickers back in the day uh, you were dependent on those you were you were slower to act than other uh, people who worked on the exchange and again this is one form of the enforcement you know, the question about you know what's fair for all the traders on the stock market and that's one thing that concerns me he doesn't really address the other thing which has to do with the circuit breakers and what happens when these robots become autonomous um, anyway he sort of does talk about some of those things because he he talks about in a study published in March 19th Anna avramovich of credit at Swiss Group AG showed that intraday volatility has actually been steadily decreasing since 2005. So from day to day, the amount of ups and downs in the stock market has been decreasing 2005 even as high frequency trading has increased. In 2008, of course, daily volatility shot to the highest level since 1932 as traders responded to the collapse of Lehman Brothers, but 2011 ranked only 16th in terms of daily volatility in that period and was less volatile than 2000 and 2002 years when high-frequency trading was less prevalent so I'm not gonna pretend to know everything there is to know about this structure and I'll defer to this woman Anna Avramovich of Credit Suisse Group AG who said quote at a minimum markets are not worse for their presence I'll take that as a fair piece of perspective that I can't refute Um, but Uh, suffice it to say, I'm a little skeptical when I see pieces like this cheerleading for high frequency trading. And part of the reason why I'm nervous is because I don't understand it well enough. So it for me, and this is true about like climate change and other things as well, I had a student one time bring me, you know, this 20 page report from some climate change skeptic who said, here's why climate change isn't really a problem. You know, seas have been rising and all this for centuries, and here's this science, and here's all these graphs about the science, and and I admitted, you know what, look, I don't understand this stuff. I don't know it well enough, but I know that a panel of, you know, hundreds, thousands of climate scientists at the UN said, this is a serious problem. We need to get to, like, 350, I don't know the number, 350 parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide, or we're all going to die. I, I, it, it comes down to a question of who do you trust, Yeah. With all, a lot of these things, if you don't have a degree in economics, and even most of those who do, you might not understand the collateralized debt obligations and the rest of it. Now, it's incumbent upon us, I think, to learn as much as we can about them.
0: I don't understand them at all.
1: I know, Robert, I, I, I hear you. But the, the point is that at some point if we're going to have a life that's not focused around this stuff you have to just sort of say okay i trust this person to sort of sound the alarm on what's wrong with the system and and i'm going to support that you know course of action now as I've said before nobody's infallible and it would be nice if there were one person you could trust on a certain issue and just say whatever this person says I believe it you need to do as much research of your own as you can but hey we've got lives we've got stuff to do so I don't know if we can trust this person who wrote in business week or if we should trust instead Alan Kohler who wrote in the business spectator which is an Australian publication website uh, and his take is quite different He's writing about these servers uh, or these computers uh, that are called cuckoos. Apparently, that's what they call them in the Australian Stock Exchange, Sydney's Data Room. Uh there six of these computers known as cuckoos i don't know why they call them that uh here's what he writes they sit against the wall opposite to the asx servers and each is connected directly to the host by a fat fiber optic pipe each cable is precisely the same length by agreement with the asx so that none gets an advantage if one server is closer to the input its cable is looped around to lengthen it so it it's again that same sort of thing like this is going to ensure that everybody's trading at exactly the same Pace, uh, So the microseconds that the electrons take to travel through the pipe don't reach anybody faster than anybody else. And (laughs) it's just crazy. He writes, think about that one less meter of optic fiber carrying data at 299.8 million meters per second would give one share trader an unfair advantage over the rest. The question is whether it's fair to the rest of us, whether those six parasites, and he's using the word parasite, parasites with their suckers fastened directly into the heart of the ASX should be allowed to get away with it. And his point is, here's the the thesis. The ASX is no longer a regulator, just a business. So it says that if the practice is legal and it pays a fee, not to mention rent in the data room, it can't and won't stop them. So he his point that he, he mentions, Alan Kohler mentions that this, this there's a financial incentive in the stock exchanges to cater to these high-frequency traders, and that makes everything more complicated. And I'm not saying that people are only ever driven by profit, but when you are paying some... When there's a financial incentive in a system for someone or some th- group to do a thing, then... I'm very suspicious then of, of people who then come along and say, well, this thing is good for the system because I don't know if I can trust you, right? It's like when the, the oil lobbyists come up and say, oh, oil drilling is safe and environmentally friendly and like tobacco executives. Would you trust a tobacco executive to say anything truthful about the health effects of smoking? Of course not. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people in the financial industry are probably getting paid to advocate a certain position. But not Hajun Chang, man. He's a rebel. He's an independent thinker. I don't know. For all I know, he might be getting paid by someone who's tainting his view. Anyway, uh, Kohler goes on to say, for global regulators, it's actually too late. High frequency trading accounts for as much as 70% of the volume on the American stock exchanges, including the New York Stock Exchange. The time to control it was 10 years ago. Um, and here's an interesting piece he points out as well these machines constantly monitor order flow into the ASX servers and the sophisticated programs can pick up patterns that indicate when a reasonably large order has been placed. When they do, what they do then, in effect, is a front run. That is, they buy ahead of the order and make a small spread selling into it. So, they have I'll just read the next paragraph. In other words, by operating at the speed of light, they can feel a buy order coming and can dart in front of them and ensure that the buyers pay a little bit more than they were going to without noticing a thing. So this is some sort of weird sorcery going on here. It's like they they get the information and they're able to make the actual buy faster than the people who are placing the large order and they sort of profit off of it. So here's the other part. He says, it is not known how much money the high frequency traders make, but whatever it is, they weren't making it 10 to 15 years ago and stock market returns have not gone up in that time. So whatever they make has come out of someone else's pocket. And he's writing to people who are presumably investors in the Australian stock exchange, which is important for the next sentence that someone of course is you. The buy orders that the HFT operators are front running come from the superannuation funds in which ordinary people have their money. Now, when they place an order, they usually end up paying a cent more than they would have because they are buying from someone who didn't own any of the shares 10 microseconds ago and only bought to make that quick cent. So that's another layer of this. If anybody listening to this is investing in the stock market, chances are you're paying some money to these high frequency traders because they're jumping right in just before you buy your trade and then selling it right away. And and it just skims a little bit off the top. HFT firms like the privately owned and aptly named GetCo for Global Electronic Trading Company, the world's largest HFT operator, produce a large amount of self-justifying research material based around the proposition that they help investors by providing extra liquidity in the market. This, plus presumably the hiring of expensive lobbyists, has snowed legislators and regulators and let the practice flourish to the point where the parasites are taking over the host and it's too late to stop them." Stock exchanges the world over are now making a fortune from renting space in their data rooms to high-frequency computerized traders and would probably collapse without it. The joke is that in many cases, the same investment banks are doing both the high-frequency trading and running the dark pools. They are causing the problem and solving it, each for a handsome profit. So that's a very optimistic view, isn't it? And finally, uh, there's a piece from the Harvard Business Review, uh, a guy named Jonathan Schleffer, who is the author of The Assumptions Economists Make, uh, the former editor of Technology Review. He holds a PhD in political science from MIT and is currently a research associate at the Harvard Business School. He wrote a piece called There Is No Invisible Hand. Uh, he writes this one of the best kept secrets in economics is that there is no case for the invisible hand after more than a century of trying to prove the opposite economic theorists investigating the matter finally concluded in the 1970s that there is no reason to believe that markets are led as if by an invisible hand to an optimal equilibrium or any equilibrium at all but the message never got through to their supposedly practical colleagues who were so eagerly push advice about almost anything most never even heard what the theorists said or else resolutely ignored it of course the dynamic but turbulent history of capitalism belies any invisible hand, the financial crisis that erupted in 2008, and the debt crises threatening Europe are just the latest evidence. And I've actually, incidentally, I've said this for a while. Didn't you make
0: some hip-hop lyrics about this once?
1: Yes, I did, Robert. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I don't remember which song it was, but I once said, uh, don't believe the hype about the invisible hand, because it's a myth. It's It's fake. It's a myth. Uh, that theory's uh, ugly and scary. That myth is fake like the tooth fairy or something like that.
0: You probably said it better in the actual song.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm freestyling here and I don't do that very well. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say, oh my God, is it already that time? Man, look how long this is. Uh, Okay, so this Schleffer guy says, Adam Smith suggested the invisible hand in an otherwise obscure passage in his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations in 1776. He mentioned it only once in the book, while he repeatedly noted situations where, quote, natural liberty does not work. So this is one of those things that a lot of times economists will do this. They'll 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 refer to something in Adam Smith as saying, here's proof of why everything we're doing is fine. And then it's not fair, it's not a fair representation of what Adam Smith said, starting with leaving aside the theory of moral sentiments, which was the other book Adam Smith wrote, that nobody ever talks about, because it doesn't fit into this convenient narrative of, free markets are the only thing we ever need, and everything will be fine if we just have completely open markets, anyway, uh, he uh, so this is uh, Schleffer now paraphrasing Adam Smith. Let banks charge much more than five percent interest, and they will tend to, uh, or they will lend to, quote prodigals and projectors, end quote, precipitating bubbles and crashes. Let quote people of the same trade end quote meet, and their conversation turns to quote some contrivance to raise prices. Let market competition continue to drive the division of labor, and it produces workers as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become.
0: You shouldn't bother reading the quotes at the beginning and ending of every quotation if it's in the middle of a sentence.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm trying to train myself not to do that. But I want it to be clear. They can read the article if they're confused. Yeah, you're right. I know. Okay, fair enough. Um, So I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Here's somebody who knows what they're talking about who agrees with me. And that's a rare thing. So when I find someone like that, I'm like, hey, there's something that is special. Let's talk about education, shall we?
0: This shit is like...
1: I found this piece through Reddit, and it was uh, apparently extracted from Reader's Digest, the Asian edition, in April of 1991 uh, by a guy named David Owen, and it's about this teacher he had in sixth grade who taught science. And it says, Mr. Whitson taught sixth grade, sixth grade science. On the first day of class, he gave us a lecture about a creature called the Wampus, an ill-adapted nocturnal animal that was wiped out during the Ice Age. He passed around a skull as he talked. We all took notes and later had a quiz. When he returned my paper, I was shocked. There was a big red X through each answer. I had failed. There had to be some mistake. I had written down exactly what Mr. Whitson said. Then I realized everyone in the class had failed. What happened? Very simple, Mr. Whitson explained. He had made up all the stuff about the cattywampus. There had never been any such animal. The information in our notes was therefore incorrect. Did we expect credit for incorrect answers? Needless to say, we were outraged. What kind of test was this and what kind of teacher? We should have figured it out, Mr. Whitson said. After all, and at the very mo- at the very moment he was passing around the cattywampa's skull, in truth, a cat's, hadn't he been telling us that no trace of the animal remained? He had described its amazing night vision, the color of its fur, and any number of other facts he couldn't have known. He had given the animal a ridiculous name, and we still hadn't been suspicious. The zeros on our papers would be recorded in his gradebook, he said, and they were. Mr. Whitson said he hoped that we would learn something from this experience. Teachers and textbooks are not infallible. In fact, no one is. He told us not to let our minds go to sleep and to speak up if we ever thought he or the textbook was wrong. Every class was an adventure with Mr. Whitson. I still remember some science periods from almost beginning to end. Uh, He ends by saying, I haven't made any great scientific discoveries, but Mr. Whitson's class gave me and my classmates something just as important, the courage to look people in the eye and tell them they are wrong. He also showed us that you can have fun doing it. And I think that's really cool. I would like to try that with my students, but they're, they're, they're pretty skeptical. I think they're already able to say that. In fact, they challenge me on a regular basis, which is great. I'm very happy to see them challenging me. Um, Yeah, I just I feel like there are some classes, though, that, you know, the thing that's bugging me about my classes lately, I don't mind venting about this and we're only 50 minutes into what's supposed to be a half hour show. I should just accept that it's going to be 45 minutes now. Every show is 45 minutes. Yeah, I know. Well, this one's going to be longer than that. You could cut some things out. No way. Everything that's in here needs to stay in here. Shut up, Robert. All right, geez, you don't have to get nasty. If you'd shut up, maybe this would be a shorter show.
0: Yeah, but I'm funny.
1: Yeah, well, we'll see what the listeners think. Anyway, here's what's bugging me about my classes. I have some, we do journal writing every day. I put up a nonfiction topic, you know, what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite book or whatever. Uh, And then I have some fiction topics, which are, you know, story starters or scenarios or lines of dialogue. They're supposed to write a story about it. A lot of those stories, I try to make them silly and funny, and, and, and I expect when I read them that people will laugh. And obviously not the whole class is going to start clutching their stomachs and falling out of their chairs, but I tend to get some good response from the audience. The audience. This, you mean the students? Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, the, like Jen Kirkman said about her wedding, right? the audience will be your family. Yeah, the audience. Uh, anyway, I have a class that, like two of them actually, where I read these stories and like Nothing. I could be reading the frickin' want ads, man. They just stare, and they're not even staring at me. They're staring at their cell phones, and that may be why. Maybe they're just not listening. I know, (sighs) but isn't it an egotistical thing to say, hey, while I'm reading my silly little story, you need to put that cell phone away and pay attention to me. Yeah, but it's a general attitude of not paying attention to the world. I know, but I feel weird saying, like, oh, my story's so important. It's much more important than anything you're doing on your little cell phone. It probably is. Yeah, but it feels like such a presumption. Oh, there may be no answer to all of this. Yeah, I know. Whatever. Let's talk about killer robots.
0: Where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. <laughs>
1: Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? Man, I can't remember who sent me this article, so I apologize. I think it was... Skulldugger, but maybe not. Anyway, thank you to whoever sent me this. Uh, It was an article on the BBC, uh, and it says, Disaster Zone Robot Competition Announced by the Pentagon. And this is the thing I reported on last week, but it had an interesting section in it uh, talking about, first of all, robots have been deployed into danger zones. Uh, After the Fukushima nuclear plant meltdown in 2011, Japanese authorities used unmanned vehicles and first responder robots developed by the British firm Quintetique. Q I N T E T I Q. if that's a word, I'll be horn about how to pronounce it, uh, to move heavy debris and measure radiation levels. Uh, the U.S. Army has also used robots in Iraq and Afghanistan to clear buildings. Da-da-da. However, DARPA says more work needs to be done to make the machines interact with humans more naturally. And I think that's great to use humans to go into places with horrible radiation and so forth, But what happens if
0: we have robots doing that work all the time and then they start to resent us and they're like, screw you,
1: humans, just because you're not immune to that radiation you think you can just send us into harm's way? But it's not harm for you. That would be like us going into a heavily magnetized place. Yeah, well, whatever. Was I talking to you just then, Robert? Robert? Oh my god, Robert, are you a robot? Uh, no. Why ever would you think that? You're just being silly now. Anyway, uh there was a later in the article they had quotes from uh, Jeremy Wyatt a reader in robotics quote robot autonomy is improving steadily but often it's easier and more reliable to have a human operate the robot remotely also autonomy raises safety and reliability concerns having said that I would expect to see limited autonomy used in robots for mapping and surveillance at disasters at some point in the next decade then it goes on this is the most interesting one Uh, Noel Sharkey professor of artificial intelligence and robotics at the University of Sheffield is concerned Concerned about the latest contest. I am sure that some good spin offs will come from it, he told the BBC. But when we look at the tasks more closely, and this is the stuff about getting in a car and opening doors with a key and that stuff, when we look at the tasks more closely and the fact that DARPA is funding the challenge, we need to be realistic about the true intentions. This is part of a US war machine with the aim of developing robots for the battlefield. While there may be very good civilian applications, these machines are clearly moving us toward the automation and industrialization of warfare. And we talked about that last week, so we don't need to talk about that anymore. Let's move on to hip hop. There's a new documentary film coming out. It's directed by Ice T, and if you don't know about Ice T, he was one of the most uh, important pioneering uh, rappers in the early days of hip hop, especially pioneering the rise of so-called gangsta rap uh, in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, he was also involved in a group called Body Count, which was uh, sort of a thrash rock group. And uh, I- I'm kind of I have mixed emotions about Ice T. He's not the First of all, he's not the best rapper in the world, but he he had some flow. I mean, he was good at what he did. Uh, He also had a lot of sexism and misogyny in his lyrics, and uh, that kind of bothered me. And he... he, Whatever. He wrote a really interesting book called The Ice Opinion, which I encourage people to read, because he sort of... It's just sort of him talking, and then this person wrote down everything he said. And uh, he's got some interesting stuff to say, especially about... He says at one point, I think teachers should be paid like doctors. And I'm like, yeah! Anyway, he... um he He also has a lot of important things to say about like police brutality and and you know the horrible conditions uh that people live in in ghettos like south central los angeles and he was living in south central uh when i believe it was south central anyway he um he had an opportunity to be in the movie Breaking and he was originally going to say like no 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 this movie's trying to take hip hop and and the burgeoning hip hop culture and try to make a quick buck on it and all the rest of it which it did. I mean that's what, what Breaking was all about. As much as I loved it because in the suburbs of, you know, Gainesville, Florida, there wasn't really much authentic hip hop for me to be a part of. So uh, it, it allowed me to sort of, you know, interact with hip hop in a way that went beyond just, you know, yo MTV raps and the rest of it. Anyway, Ice T wasn't going to do it. And then some of his friends said, you know what, Ice, you need to do this to get out there. You need to get big so that you can tell people about what's going on in South Central and people could, you know, learn about the violence and the drugs and the gang banging and all the rest of it so that we might, you know, start to make some progress eradicating these ills from our community. And uh, that's exactly what happened, which is why there's no more gangs or crime or drugs in South Central Los Angeles. So it's a win-win. Anyway, Ice T uh, directed a documentary film, and it's called Something from Nothing: The Art of Rap. And it has a lot of cool people in it. And the trailer here has uh, music from Public Enemy, and I'm just very excited about this movie. Apparently, it's going to actually come out in June. I don't trust that any theaters around here will have it, but maybe they will. I think it looks—it has a lot of promise to talk about the actual art of rap music instead of. And Ice T said the reason he did it is because there's a lot of stuff about you know the bling and all the pop. Influence in rap, and he wanted to talk about the actual heart of rap music. So I'm gonna play the audio from the trailer. Check it out.
0: It didn't start out as a popular cultural movement. It didn't even have pop culture ambitions.
1: We're not supposed to be thinking
0: like this. We're not supposed to be talking like this. We created something from nothing. We wanted to hit everybody across the head with a sledgehammer. Like, listen to what we're doing out here. There has to be a method for the madness. I don't like looking at you. Fix your pants, fix your hat. What are you doing invading my home? Why are my kids liking your music? What's going on? Back in the days, we used to call it the dozens. Slaves would start saying, your head's bigger than your neck, and that makes you a lollipop. Ah. It's a folk art, it's folk music. We took the record player and turned it into an instrument. Here's this world, you know, that you may not know about, and the people who lived in that world from the other side of the tracks gave them a voice. Hip-hop didn't invent anything. Hip-hop reinvented everything lyrics is what rap is all about rhymes that paint pictures for people this is some of my purpose this is my perspective I say something with some dignity behind that rhyme i mean you can consider dr seuss a rapper they think you're just talking over a record it's q-tip's voice it's snoop's swag and personality what's your style my style i would say is taekwondo go. Yeah, Hip hop is a masterpiece, but nobody painted it all. When you talk about hip-hop, we talk about the whole movement. Let me
1: tell you something. Hip-hop. So
0: it's time to leave you a preview. So you two can review what we do. You physically make yourself hungry. That's just the way I do. I'm a little bit tough in the studio, but everybody's happy once they come out of the booth. I don't have no business wearing saggy jeans. (laughs) You don't want to get rich and die trying. (laughs) Not act like the mic cut off. Yo, 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 mic cut off. (laughs) Get them suckers off the stage They whack. (laughs) Thank you for letting us be ourselves. Rap is not pop if you call it that, just stop. I'm not BET or MTV. I'm H-I-P-H-O-P. Freestyle!
1: I am so stoked for this
0: movie. Keep it moving, Pippet. All right, love is
1: love. I just can't wait. I can't. I think this is going to be awesome. And there are a lot of really cool people in that trailer, including Immortal Technique and Most Deaf and Common and Dougie Fresh and Ice Cube and Chuck D. And I think Ice T's done a really good job of reaching a lot of people who need to be consulted about this project. And he'll probably work in people I don't know as well. I'm worried about the gender balance because, uh, as I said, Ice T isn't known for being, mu- you know, really a feminist or anything. But uh, I don't know. I- I- I'm going to watch it before I comment on it. But I'm just really excited because I think this is another example uh like there's a documentary film called Hip hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes, which does a good job of taking a look at you know what hip hop is and it has a particular focus on gender problems in hip hop, but uh it's probably one of the best documentaries about hip hop, and there haven't been enough you know this is an important art form that's you know now like thirty years old, and it deserves a lot more. Uh, critical and analytical focus than it's really had. And then we're starting to see some texts coming up uh, that focus on hip hop. And, you know, I-, I have some recommendations about what books people could read if they're interested in learning more about hip hop. But I think uh, documentary film has a lot of potential to go even further and, and certainly reach more people. But the, the documentary here looks like it's gonna be doing something that I try to emphasize in my interdisciplinary poetics class, which is all about hip hop, which is, this doesn't just, you know, the, the, the perspective of hip hop that they're feeding you on the radio and MTV and BET, uh, that's, that's not what true hip hop really is. I mean, that's a part of it, but, the the, the the mainstream you know the rap industry I had a, I heard a guy at a conference one time who broke it down uh, talking about the rap industry is over here and then hip hop culture is over here and the rap industry is all about making profits and promoting one point of view hip hop culture is about nurturing and about you know supporting people and rap industry is not about supporting anybody except getting paid and right now that only has to do with music that celebrates black death and drug dealing in the hood and shooting shooting people and disrespecting women that's what the rap industry is focused on and some people say that's because the majority of people who buy rap music are white people so the question is well maybe white people want to celebrate black death and they want to have all these sexist messages going on and so forth and if white people really were troubled by you know brothers getting shot in the hood they'd stop buying music that's like yeah let's shoot each other woo and Public Enemy did a track where there's a guy like on behalf of the Ku Klux Klan we like to thank y'all Black folks for shooting each other all the time and saving us the trouble. So, whatever. I don't remember what my point was there.
0: I think you were just rambling. Why
1: don't you go to the quote of the week? All right. I think I should just go to the quote of the week because we're getting out of time here. Friends,
0: Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears because the ending is near but don't panic you can't function if you live in a fear pay attention you
1: gotta listen to here today's quote comes from Ossie Davis and if you don't know about Ossie Davis oh you are sleeping he was one of the most important black men in US film history uh along with Sidney Poitier James Earl Jones uh Ossie Davis played the mayor in Spike Lee's do the right thing that's the first thing I ever saw him in he was in a lot of Spike Lee's movies he was in get on the bus and I believe he was in Malcolm X but I can't remember uh anyway uh he um, he starred in a stage productions of The Raisin in the Sun. He played juror number two in the 1997 film version of 12 Angry Men. And with his wife, Ruby Dee, who was herself an important actress on the stage and on the screen, uh, he also spent years involved in civil rights activism. In 1995, they both received the National Medal of Arts, and they were close friends with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and other people, just fascinating people. And I found this quote from Ossie Davis, which I thought was excellent. So we're going to end with it. Ossie Davis said, quote, Struggle is strengthening. Battling with evil gives us the power to battle evil even more. So I love that notion. And as Public Enemy said, if you're down to fight the power, here's the power to fight. And that's how I feel. So yeah, get out there and battle some evil people. And it works the other way too. If you succumb to evil, if you sort of acquiesce to it, if you accept it, if you feel defeated, you will feel more defeated in the future. And so that's why a small act of resistance can make you feel good in the Buddhist sense of like, you know, right action leads to right livelihood. It, doing something positive to fight evil builds on itself and you get strength. And that's why you got to sometimes just take that first step. And sometimes if you're having a bad day, sometimes just being like, you know what, I'm going to do something awesome here. I'm going to do something nice for somebody else. And that's that's where that notion of karma comes in from the Zen tradition of like, well, the Buddhist tradition, I suppose it's not just unique to Zen. Don't conflate Zen and Buddhism itself because there's many different kinds of Buddhism. I know, Robert, shut up. Anyway, the, you know, my point is that, yeah, you know, doing something awesome makes your life more awesome. So go on, do awesome things, people. That's the end of the show. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, F-B-E-S-P dot org slash synapse. And, oh, I should mention this. I, uh, I set up a top three list of things up at the top of the show notes. That's a good place for the top three list. Shut up, Robert. So these are the things you definitely should read or watch. The most important things I think are in the show notes. I mean, you really should go through all of them and read all the stuff that I've posted, but I know you might not have time. But those top three are definitely ones I should encourage you to check out, and I'll be having that trailer for Something From Nothing because the visuals are cool too. It looks like a very interesting movie to look at. My website is the Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, FBESP.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and other stuff. Shout-outs this week to Blue Hellman and Master Zulu for the very kind reviews on iTunes. Other folks are encouraged to leave a review on iTunes, but, you know, I'm not going to beg you for five stars. Whatever you think is appropriate, please do give that. And if you have feedback or anything else, by all means, uh, send it to me. Uh, you, you, on iTunes, it may be under Deviant Syncast or it may be under Didactic Syncast. I've made the change and I think it's showing up differently in the feeds now, but you may have to still search for Deviant Syncast. But I suppose if you're listening to this, you've already found it. Whatever. I'd also like to give another shout out to the idiot on Reddit who said that it's, quote, probably not intentional, end quote, that Bender on Futurama was given his name because it's a double meaning to do with bending girders and drinking too much. These people were like, oh, I don't think they, you know, considered that when they were naming Bender. I'm like, really? You really think that? You're stupid. And yes, by the way, I know that it's a derogatory term for gay people in the United Kingdom, but that probably doesn't have anything to do with it, so... Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize that there are dumb things still inside this podcast that I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. If you have any cool news stories you want to send to me, I am always reachable at ESP at org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.